Chapter One of the Green Odyssey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This book was originally published by Ballantine Books, 1957. The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapter One. Danger, thrills, adventure. Alan Green was not exactly a hero. In fact, he liked peace just as well as the next man. Not that he was really afraid of that crazy hot-blooded hound dog Alzo, or even of the hound's gorgeous owner, the Duchess Zuni, who was also hot-blooded, to say nothing of the Duke. After all, these things were understood on this backward, violent planet, and a man could manage, provided he was alert twenty-four hours a day. And as a matter of fact, Alan was only normally apprehensive of his Juno-esque, tempestuous, but altogether lovable wife, Amra. Delightful, demanding Amra, and her five uproarious kids. The trouble was he was tired, and homesick. So when he heard of two other downed spacemen, he hitched a ride with a piratical merchant captain on a wind-roller destined to carry him to the spaceship, and thence to the peaceful green hills of Earth. But he had reckoned without the vagaries of the wind-roller, pirates, the traveling islands, the rascally captain, and various flora and fauna peculiar to this planet, all of which it now seemed regarded Alan with unnerving malevolence. And worst of all, Amra was determined that he should be a hero. Amra won. Chapter One For two years Alan Green had lived without hope. From the day the spaceship had crashed on this unknown planet, he had resigned himself to the destiny created for him by accident and mathematics. Chances against another ship landing within the next hundred years were a million to one. Therefore it would do no good to sit around waiting for rescue. Much as he loathed the idea, he must live the rest of his life here, and he must squeeze as much blood as he could out of this planet-sized turnip. There wasn't much to squeeze. In fact, it seemed to him that he was the one losing the blood. Shortly after he'd been cast away, he'd been made a slave. Now, suddenly, he had hope. Hope came to him a month after he had been made foreman of the kitchen slaves of the Duke of Tropot. It came to him as he was standing behind the Duchess during a meal and directing those who were waiting upon her. It was the Duchess Zuni who had not so subtly maneuvered him from the labor pens to his coveted, if dangerous, position. Why dangerous? Because she was very jealous and possessive, and the slightest hint of lack of attention from him could mean he'd lose his life or one limb or another. The knowledge of what had happened to his two predecessors kept him extremely sensitive to her every gesture, her every wish. That fateful morning he was standing behind her as she sat at one end of the long breakfast table. In one hand he held the foreman's wand, a little white baton topped by a large red ball. 
With it he gestured at the slaves who served food, who poured wine and beer, who fanned away the flies, who carried in the household god and set it on the god chair, who played something like music. Now and then he bent over the Duchess Zuni's long black hair and whispered phrases from this or that love poem, praising her beauty, her supposed unattainability, and his burning, if seemingly hopeless, passion for her. Zuni would smile or repeat the formula of thanks, the short one, or else giggle at his funny accent. The Duke sat at the other end of the table. He ignored the byplay just as he ignored the so-called secret passage inside the walls of the castle, which Green used to get to the Duchess's apartments. Custom demanded this, just as Custom demanded that he should play the outraged husband if she got tired of Green or angry at him, and accused him publicly of amorous advances. This was enough to make Green jittery, but he had more than the Duke to consider. There was Alzo. Alzo was the Duchess's watchdog, a mastiff-like monster with shaggy red-gold hair. The dog hated Green with a vindictiveness that Green could only account for by supposing that the animal knew, perhaps from his body odor, that he was not a native of this planet. Alzo rumbled a warning deep in his chest every time Green bent over the Duchess or made a too sudden movement. Occasionally he rose to his four feet and nuzzled the man's leg. When that happened, Green could not keep from breaking out into a sweat, for the dog had twice bitten him, playfully, so to speak, and severely lacerated his calf. As if that wasn't bad enough, Green had to worry that the natives might notice that his scars healed abnormally fast almost overnight. He'd been forced to wear bandages on his legs long after the new skin had come in. Even now the nauseating canine was sniffing around Green's quivering hide in the hope of putting the fear of the devil in him. At that moment the earthman resolved that, come the headman's axe, rack, wheel, or other hellish tortures, he was going to kill that hound. It was just after he made that vow that the Duchess caused him to forget altogether the beast. Dear said Zuni, interrupting the Duke in the midst of his conversations with a merchant captain. What is this I hear about two men who have fallen from the sky in a great ship of iron? Green quivered, and he held his breath as he waited for the Duke's reply. The Duke, a short, dark, many-chinned man with white hair and very thick, bristly salt-and-pepper eyebrows, frowned. Men? Demons, rather. Can men fly in an iron ship through the air? These two claim to have come from the stars, and you know what that means. Remember Aroxel's prophecy. A demon will come claiming to be an angel. No doubt about these two. Just to show you their subtlety, they claim to be neither demon nor angels, but men. <laughs> Now there's devilish clever thinking, confusing to anybody but the most clear-headed. I'm glad the king of Astoria wasn't taken in. Eagerly, Zuni leaned forward, her large brown eyes bright, and her red-painted mouth open and wet. 
Oh, has he burned them already? What a shame! I should think he'd at least torture them for a while. Miron, the merchant captain, said, Your pardon, gracious lady, but the king of Astoria has done no such thing. The Astorian law demands that all suspected demons should be kept in prison for two years. Everybody knows that a devil can't keep his human disguise more than two years. At the end of that time he reverts to his natural flesh and form, a hideous sight to behold, blasphemous, repulsive, soul-shaking. Miron rolled his one good eye so that only the white showed, and made the sign to ward off evil, the index finger held rigidly out from a clenched fist. Chococksteer, the household priest, dived under the table, where he crouched praying, secure in the knowledge that demons couldn't touch him while he knelt beneath the thrice-blessed wood. The duke swallowed a whole glass of wine, apparently to calm his nerves, and belched. Miron wiped his face and said, "'Of course I wasn't able to find out much, because we merchants are regarded with deep suspicion, and scarcely dare to move outside the harbor or the marketplace. The Astorians worship a female deity. <laughs> Ridiculous, isn't it? And eat fish. They hate us Tropathians, because we worship Zaxropater, male of males, and because they must depend on us to bring them fish.' But they aren't close-mouthed. They babble on and on to us, especially when one has given them wine for nothing. Green finally released his breath in a sigh of relief. How glad he was that he had never told these people his true origin. So far as they knew, he was merely one of the many slaves who came from a distant country in the north. Miran cleared his throat adjusted his violet turban and yellow robes, pulled gently at the large gold ring that hung from his nose, and said, "'It took me a month to get back from Astoria, and that is very good time indeed, but then I am noted for my good luck, though I prefer to call it skill plus the favor given by the gods to the truly devout. I do not boast, O gods, but merely give you tribute because you have smiled upon my ventures.' and have found pleasing the scent of my many sacrifices in your nostrils. Green lowered his eyelids to conceal the expression of disgust which he felt must be shining from them. At the same time he saw Zuni's shoe tapping impatiently. Inwardly he groaned, because he knew she would divert the conversation to something more interesting to her, to her clothes and the state of her stomach and or complexion and there would be nothing that anybody could do about it, because the custom was that the woman of the house regulated the subject of talk during breakfast. If only this had been lunch or dinner, then the men would theoretically have had uncontested control. These two demons were very tall, like your slave Green here, said Miran, and they could not speak a word of Astorian, or at least they claimed they couldn't. When King Rousmig's soldiers tried to capture them, they brought from the folds of their strange clothes two pistols that only had to be pointed to send silent and awesome and sure death. Everywhere men dropped dead. Panic overtook many, but there were brave soldiers who kept on charging, and eventually the magical instruments became exhausted. 
the demons were overpowered and put into the tower of grass cats from which no man or demon has yet escaped and there they will be until the festival of the sun's eye then they will be burnt from beneath the table rose the babble of the priest jocaster as he blessed every one in the house down to the latest born pup and the fleas living thereof and cursed all those who were possessed by even the tiniest demon the duke growing impatient at the noise kicked under the table jocaster yelped and presently crawled out he sat down and began gnawing the meat from a bone a well done thou good and faithful servant expression on his fat features green also felt like kicking him just as he often felt like kicking every single human being on this planet it was hard to remember that he must exercise compassion and understanding for them and that his own remote ancestors had once been just as nauseatingly superstitious cruel and bloody there was a big difference between reading about such people and actually living among them a history or a romantic novel could describe how unwashed and diseased and formula-bound primitives were but only the too too substantial stench and filth could make your gorge rise even as he stood there zori's powerful perfume rose and clung in heavy festoons about him and slithered down his nostrils it was a rare and expensive perfume brought back by miron from his voyages and given to her as a token of the merchant's esteem used in small quantities it would have been quite effective to express feminine daintiness and to hint at delicate passion but no zumi poured it like water over her hoping to cover up the stale odor left by not taking a bath more than once a month she looked so beautiful he thought and stank so terribly at least she had it first now she looked less beautiful because he knew how stupid she was and didn't stink quite so badly because his nostrils had become somewhat adjusted they'd had to i intend to be back in astoria by the time of the festival said miron i've never seen the eye of the sun burn demons before it's a giant lens you know there will be just time enough to make a voyage there and get back before the rainy season i expect to make even greater profits than the last time because i've established some highly placed contacts o oh, gods i do not boast but merely praise your favor to your humble worshipper miron the merchant of the clan of Fenican. please bring me some more of this perfume said the duchess and i just love the diamond necklace you gave me diamonds emerald rubies cried miron kissing his hand and rolling his eyes ecstatically i tell you the historians are rich beyond our dreams jewels flow in their marketplaces like drops of water in a cataract ah if only the emperor could be induced to organize a great raiding fleet and storm its walls he remembers too well what happened to his father's fleet when he tried it growled the duke the storm that destroyed his thirty ships was undoubtedly raised by the priests of the goddess huda 
i still think that the expedition would have succeeded however if the late emperor had not ignored the vision that came to him the night before they set sail it was the great god axoputi and he said there was a lengthy conversation which did not hold green's attention he was too busy trying to think of a plan whereby he could get to astoria and to the demon's iron vessel which was obviously a spaceship this was his only chance soon the rainy season would start and there would be no vessels leaving for at least three months he could of course just walk away and hope to get to estonia on foot thousands of miles through countless perils and he had only a general idea of where the city was no miron was his only hope but how he didn't think that stowing away would work there was always a careful search for slaves who might try just that very plan he looked at miron the short fat big-stomached hook-nosed one-eyed fellow with many chins and a large gold ring in his nose the fellow was shrewd shrewd and he would not want to offend the duchess by helping her official gigolo escape not that is unless green could offer him something that was so valuable that he couldn't afford not to take the risk miran boasted that he was a hard-headed businessman but it was green's observation that there was always a large soft spot in that supposedly impenetrable cranium the fissure of cupididas end of chapter 1